Welcome to the Thunderstock Show, episode 45, with a near and dear friend of mine. We're not going to be talking about business all too much today. Instead, we're going to be focusing more on life and liberty, specifically as it pertains to topics like religion, theology, life, philosophy, what I think are the important things. As always, this show is intended to be a valuable brainstorm to enhance your life, liberty, and pursuit of property. Without further ado, my dear friend and guest, Ethan Shear. How you doing, Ross? Hey, you know, I'm doing really well. It's a Thursday. I got to talk to Ethan. Mm-hmm. I cannot complain. How are you doing? I'm well, too. I've got um, a lot of things cooking right now, but the end is in sight for them, which is really great. And so I am very much excited to uh, uh, take a break from all of those things that are cooking and just talk with you. So when we're talking about cooking, for those that, that don't know, that don't know you, you're currently about to take your last exam. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we graduated college at the same time. So yes. Not not to date anyone here, but you've been you've been at this academic thing for a while, man. I have. I have. I took uh, about three years off to be a pastor, a United Methodist pastor full time. Uh, between 2017 and 2020. Um, and so I, I've been going so like that, but that's been my only break in between school. <laughs> <laughs> so after, so we went to Elizabethtown College. I think you had, a, you had a double major, you had a concentration, sociology and religious studies. Is that correct? Yep, that's exactly right. And um, after that, you went to United, what was it, Wesleyan? Yeah, Wesley Theological Seminary yes. in D.C. Mm-hmm. And that was probably an interesting experience, I'm sure, because yeah. like, like me, you're also from central, south central Pennsylvania area. Mm-hmm. And then you lived in D.C. I did. Yeah, I spent four years in D.C. Um, it was definitely a, a culture shock. It was a bigger culture shock uh, in that first year than I expected. Um, and really by culture shock, I really, I really just mean like the material conditions of it, like by and large, the people of D.C., really great people. Like, it's super diverse city, as you can imagine. But, like, everybody's very, because they all live there, um, they don't have a lot of the same, like, like connotations of the city that people outside of D.C. have. Like, you know, mm. you get it. Like, both, you know, I'm, you, I'm probably a little more liberal than you are in terms of my politics. But, like, it's the same thing for both sides. Everybody's like, eh, D.C., just filled with corrupt politicians who right who, the politicians who, really put a an ugly smear no matter where you are especially today people are just not really happy with politicians in general right exactly but like there's a lot of people that live there you're exactly right and the there people that politicians. live there they're like it's their home right yeah. and so and so they're they're real nice and they're they're it's in my opinion it's a really great i ended up loving living there um um, but, um, but the biggest culture shock was just the noise. Like, like I did not realize how quiet central Pennsylvania was until, um, I showed up in DC and for 24 seven, it was just cars and people yelling and, and so, but it was great. And there's, there's like nowhere you can walk to, to take a break. Yeah. You can't like, you can walk anywhere. DC yeah. is a very walkable city, but you can't walk to a silent part of DC. <laughs> that's that's neat and when you were in dc what was your what was the degree you were pursuing there 
So the at the seminary, the the primary degree, I ended up getting two degrees. The primary degree was the Master of Divinity, which is like the pastor degree. And so mm. you should think of it like any practical masters. It's like a master's of library science. Why do people get that to become librarians, right? Like mm-hmm. master of uh, even even like a master of business, right? Master of business administration. Um, it's the same sort of thing, right? Like it's why do people get that? to go into business in some way, right? Um, like a the CPA MDiv- to be a certified public accountant or- Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, M- the MDiv is designed for pastors. It's, you know, a mixture of like uh, uh, um, um, church growth stuff. And so like you, you study with folks who study the church, you know, as an institution, it's theology, it's biblical studies, it's- um, um, caregiving and counseling classes and stuff like that. Uh, and then the other degree I got was the master of theological studies, which is, you know, like a research degree, like an mm. academic, you know, there were a decent amount of folks at the seminary who were just getting that degree and they, they were ready to do whatever, right? Like they came cause they liked theology. They came, um, I had a couple of students that I knew who, um, were getting, Wesley is right next to American University. In okay. D- mm-hmm. And and what we had a, a deal where you could get dual enroll and get like a master's of theological studies and a master's of whatever at American. And so we had some cool students who were like, yeah, I'm studying business relations in American, but uh, I really think I need some theology with that as well. And I'm like, oh, man, great. Cool. So that's good. So, so basically the degrees that enabled you to practice as a pastor Mm -hmm. and then enabled you to pursue research if you so chose. Exactly. Exactly. So then you practice as a pastor afterwards for three years Mm -hmm. and where you weren't in DC at that time, were you when you were as a pastor? No, we were, we went back up to Pennsylvania but not in anywhere near where where we grew up. We went to the Pittsburgh side of Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. I was in Clearfield County, which is about an hour outside of State College. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, uh, I served a church in a little town called Kerwinsville, um, which is just this tiny little lumber town. That was their major um, uh, industry was lumber. Um, and they were weird. I won't lie. I love that town a lot. And I love those people very dearly. It sounds uh, like a different change of pace than DC as far as was, quiet. Definitely. Cars. Mm-hmm. And, and Kerwinsville, I actually, I wish I would have heard of it. I haven't heard of it. I'm looking at Google maps, state college. I mean, there's a lot of green. That's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and you passed there for three years, right? In the yep. same church. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. It was a good time. What was it like going from the classroom setting to that's your main your main thing? Like how'd that go? Oh, I was itching for it. I loved it. I loved it. I um actually, if I may, I, not to jump ahead a little bit. Like, oh, please do. My my three years there is is probably the primary thing that got me into my PhD program at UVA was that I I had, um, unlike a lot of my colleagues who ended up getting in as well, you know, or, or maybe who 
got their degree, their their bachelor and master's degree at Harvard, right? Like, or or did whatever. I, uh, an Elizabethtown College and a little Methodist theological seminary graduate, um, beat them purely because I had three years of on the ground experience. Uh, okay, doing what I wanted to study because I studied theology at, at, at the University of Virginia. Doing what I wanted to study with people. You know, and being like, hey, here's three years of pastoral ministry where I can concretely show you, you know, where some of my research questions are coming from. Right. Like they're coming from this experience here. Um, I think that's such an interesting an interesting dynamic, Ethan, when you you know, I'm more familiar with the business world and I know working with people that do management consulting or finance you know, typically think about like bankers or like really large business people would have these employees. There's usually two tracks. Like you said, you can go and get your, your master's, your degree, and then go into business for a couple of years and then go back. Or you can go from, you know, from a, a highly touted university and then get your MBA or your degree or whatever. But the people that have the business experience in my experience of working with them, are head and shoulders mm-hmm. just, just I can have a conversation with them. Like I don't have an MBA. I don't, I don't have the degree, but because they have real life examples of like why decisions should be made or why things should happen versus like being told from somebody else only it's good to have both. I think it's good to have oh, both, yeah. mm-hmm. but when it comes to who I want to work with in a business, you need to have both. I, I don't think having just one of only studying business and books. And again, I don't know how similar that is to, to ch- the church, but I'm glad that those who select you for your PhD program agree with me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm really glad about that. But no, I think you're right. Like, I think the role of um, like the role of like hot, particularly as you get into like the mass, the, the graduate level of academics, right? Like, the role that those things that 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 kind of education should have it should be what I'm going to call a disruptive role, right? And so, like somebody who had never done any of that of the graduate school stuff in any field, business, mm-hmm. theology, church, it doesn't matter, um, but has a lot of experience is is almost certainly really really great at doing the job well but ultimately the way it's been done. Mm. Right. And I, which is, which could be great. Like, that's not a bad thing. That's, you know, if, if you inherit an ice cream shop from your dad, you know how to run an ice cream shop. That's good. Like, like that's not a bad thing at all. You probably are going to be successful. Um, but if you can combine that with graduate level, um, you know, education in your field, now you've got uh, extra tools in your pocket to disrupt, you know, what, what's been going on. And now you can take more risks because you have more knowledge to and, and more know-how to be able to be like, well, this is working, but I wonder if, if I can apply what I've learned here and see if I can make other things work. Brother, I, w- I went into a business that was 53 years old, family mm-hmm. business. Great business. It was the first one I ever bought. And when I walked in there, they were still sending people their tax forms from a typewriter. 
Jesus Christ. Can't do yeah, that. You can't do that. So like to your point, like, yeah, they were really good at a lot of stuff, but having someone else with a fresh set of eyes, like, no, you can use Microsoft Word. You, like, really you can, can just you can just use email if you wanted. Like you mm-hmm. don't have to use the USPS or you know the Pony Express. Right. But right. to your point, like there's a lot of stuff that they knew about the product and about the industry and history that I would have never been able to learn. So right. to your point, like it. So what are some of the things, you know, because you've been at UVA now since 2020 or 2019? 2020. 2020. Started during COVID. Yeah. What are are some of the things, Ethan, that have been disruptive to you in your your study of theology and and as it pertains to United Methodist? Because I know we have mutual friends that also did the United Methodist route. It seems like they did, you know, after seminary, you may have taken de- very different career path routes. So can you talk to me like how your transformation has been from what it looked like when you thought you wanted to do an E-Town or, you know, right when you got into Wesley graduate versus like today you taking your last exam? Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question, Ross. So I think I, so I love being a pastor. I still am a pastor. Um, and chances are, unless something really like bad happens, um, that would totally damage my relationship with the church, with like the denomination, I'll probably still be a pastor in some way. Um, but I would say that my education at UVA has done like the biggest thing it has disrupted in terms of how I think about being a pastor is because UVA is a secular state school with a really, really enormous religion program, which is just what it is. I, w- I like, never knew that. Yeah, yeah. So UVA's religion program, that's why I applied. UVA's religion program is is the largest freestanding religious studies program in the world. Um, I know, isn't that wild? Wow. There, there are other really That's big insane. It is insane. There are other really big programs and, and there are, are also, you know, like theology schools that are fairly big that are probably about as big as UVA's program, but like, it's not, it's, it's a, in terms of just a program, like a, like a department that is associated with one cop with one university, it's the biggest. Um, And because it's so big, it can support um theology like like uh, about seven or eight faculty in theology which is really unusual for uh religious studies in general but especially for like you know uva is a state school you know it, tell, tell be, me the difference between theology and religious studies sure so religious studies is a um a field that uh is more interdisciplinary it focuses on uh, it asks questions of like cultural studies and um, uh, uh, social sciences and um, philosophy of religion and sometimes theology, depending on who you're talking to. So to, religious studies maybe more of an umbrella. It's more of an umbrella, but but there are um, but like the kinds of questions that folks who are religious studies scholars ask are not the same kind of questions that like theology folks ask. Theology folks are doing something more normative. They're doing something 
they 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 make assumptions that about um, the divine, or they make assumptions about um, religious communities and their relationship to the divine, and and are doing something a little more like philosophy. Mm. It's not that religious studies doesn't have philosophy. It's more that in religious studies, philosophy is used as one tool among many tools. Like anthropology or sociology as the other tools we're talking about. Yes, yes. And so Mm -hmm. and so they a, a religious studies person might ask a question like. Why is it that. Um, uh, um, um, Aborigine, Aboriginal uh, religions in Australia still exist at all. Because, you know, if we take seriously things like secularization, colonialization, the spread of these major world religions, man, it should be increasingly unlikely that, that like, Nate indigenous religious traditions exist but they do and so a a person who studies religious studies might go to australia and do like field research perhaps or they might engage in a critical study where they they maybe they they try to think about um australian economics in relation to this religious the uh, aboriginal religious traditions right um it's stuff like that. They're not asking questions like are like religious studies folks don't ask questions like is Christianity true? <laughs> like that's not really that's not really their field, right? right. A theologian might ask that, but but a but a, a religious studies scholar uh, isn't really interested in that. But they might ask, um, uh, what does it mean? how do Christians act when they think their religion is true? That might be a religious studies question. Uh, does that make sense? If I were to pair it back, what I, my understanding, it's more like religious studies is observing through empirical evidence and, yeah. and the theology is more or less using inductive reasoning um, more, more along the lines of like logic and, I'm not saying that we'll just say it doesn't have logic. What I'm saying is, you know, it, my brother has a PhD in mathematics, right? So mm-hmm. what he does is probably the equivalent to, you know, because math would be the umbrella term for religious studies. And sure. some people can do, use their PhD in math and do physics or engineering. Mm-hmm. But he does like just purely theoretical math. Right. If I were to draw a comparison, you probably would be that equivalent in like theology mm, yeah. versus doing like religious studies, you know, as if you are a mathematical like engineer or physicist or something like that. That that's a good that I'm closer to theoretical mathematics. Now, now what I do is I do what's called public theology. Mm-hmm. And so my interest as a theologian, so I'm not like um I can do this because I have training in doing this. Like I but I'm not like a Thomas Aquinas, you know, or I'm an not Anselm. Like, Anselm, I'm not like sitting there with my pen and paper. <laughs> I, mean, I would like to picture you as Thomas Aquinas sometime, <laughs> but like, I, I, I won't. Out of respect, I just not all the time. I won't picture that. I, and I appreciate that. <laughs> but but like what I do is called public theology, which is um, uh, God talk at the intersect and like and like stuff like that. So like theology at the intersection of like 
culture or or um, politics or economics or um, uh, uh, any public sphere, right? Like that we inhabit the public public. In my opinion, when we talk about the public sphere, that's a little bit of a misnomer because in reality, we actually, I think, inhabit lots of publics, mm. right? Like, I don't think there's one sphere in, in which we're, that's why I get kind of frustrated when, when people complain about um, uh, First Amendment, uh, is it First Amendment rights? I guess, First Amendment rights on like Twitter or like social media. I'm like, hey, brother, if you violate a social media, social media's terms and agreements, they can do something to you because that's not the public sphere. It's a public among many publics. Um, now, if you were to, if you were to go in front of the White House and protest, and they sent you know jackboot thugs to throw you in prison, that's a very different conversation <laughs> because that is a public sphere that uh, allows us to, and and by law should allow us to exist and interact and do what we need to do. But like the church is also a public because it's a public facing, you know, organization. Right. And so when we're, and so when I do public theology, one of the publics I talk about is the church. Or when I do theology, one of the publics I talk about is the political public or, um, um, uh, 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 different like forms of cultural publics, right? Economics, I, I don't dive too much into economics. It's not really my thing, but uh, but like culture, church, and uh, politics are probably my three things that I'm interested in. Culture, church, and politics. That's pretty, it is, I'm, I appreciate the context, right? Because mm -hmm. otherwise it's just, it, it's a very wide open thing right because like, yeah you're right i mean I, I had a i had a podcast yesterday this is something that i feel like i have to share and the person traveled around the world military what have you went to mozambique mm -hmm. and just spent some time with the native people and realized that wow they all look really healthy they're super lean like sure. their their family very tight-knit great community what have you and they just like didn't have agricultural practices like we had over here. And he just wanted to show them like if you take a potato and you just like cut it in half and you put it in the ground, then you'll have two potatoes and then you can make four and then eight. And they're just and the general sentiment when he said talking to the counselor was like, nah, like they're not they're not interested. And he's like, well, what do you mean? That's just like agriculture 101 from where I'm from. He goes, it's like their way of life. They go and hunt the sweet potato. Like that's what they do. And sure. they're in their worldview. They're healthy. They're happy. They're fulfilled. They have purpose. Mm -hmm. Is it what we would look at as the most agriculturally beneficial thing? No. But are there other benefits to doing this sweet potato hunt? In their minds, yes. So when you talk about studying the church in terms of different publics, whether that's culturally or whether that's politically, you you're making kind of the point like, you know, hey, one one way person's agriculture is not necessarily like you're, you're 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 representing the sweet potato people not necessarily <laughs> them particularly but you're saying hey no i'm gonna <laughs> speak on their behalf to the rest and be like this is what the logic is behind that kind right. of maybe maybe there's a recency bias because i just had that conversation yesterday but i would like to think that 
and one thing before I forget is you said something about freedom of speech and social media. And you think that like each social platform, it's like totally okay to be like, Hey, you can't say that here because it's a public, a, a place. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in picking your brain more on that. Sure. Yeah, no, I, that's okay. Cause that's a, in, in a, in, in a certain sense, it's also a theological question, right? So like, but I, but maybe I'll bracket the theology. Let, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. So like, I think the only reason I, I, there's probably more than one reason why I think this way, but like, because I think that it's more complex than there is a private sphere and a public sphere, even in, even in the private sector, even in like the, our private lives as people, there are multiple private spheres, right? Like, like it, for many of us, you and I are family people. Like for many of us, the family represent our family represents like one of the central private spheres of our lives, right? Like, and in that sphere, you know, there are uh, we take on roles as you know, not just as men, but but as anybody in the sphere, we take on roles as protectors and providers, but. You and I both know that because you and I both have daughters, we are also nurturers. We have to be, you know, there's no such thing as the man is the provider and the woman is the nurturer. No, we jump back and forth constantly. Like, cause- Yeah, because if I didn't do that, then I would just hear inordinate amounts of crying and it would just be bad for everyone. It would be you, bad have for to, everyone. you have to assume the role when needed. Exactly. And and like it, but but we also, I think, know that or or. I would say that even in the private sphere, we inhabit multiple private spheres, right? There is a sphere that you and your wife inhabit that your kids are not, that your kid is not really a part of. And I don't just mean like, I'm not just talking like sexy time. I'm just mean everything. Like you and your wife make decisions. Yeah. That are for um, your, your daughter, but are, but your daughter's not a part of. Right. And so even within that private sphere, there are other private spheres. Your business is something of a private sphere, right? Like there's a public facing aspect of it, but there's a private dimension to it that happens behind the scenes. I want to apply that same logic to the public and say, um, because we all inhabit different communities at once, um, we all are a part of different publics at once. And um, I think to apply the same rules for every public is perhaps possible, but I don't know if it if it um, will lead to flourishing in every public. I also right. think it's interesting that most of the rules we have are based somewhat on location, right? The First Amendment applies to the borders of the United States. Ab- okay? Absolutely. The whole world didn't sign up for the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But does Twitter apply to only the United States? No. It does not. You're right. You're right. It doesn't. And it also applies to people. But you can make Twitter bots. Exactly. (laughs) So I don't know. You can't get mad at a non-person. Like, how do you arrest a robot? Exactly. Are you going to shun the robot from the church? It's It's not a person. It doesn't care. It's not a person. It's not a person. I think that's exactly right. And and you bringing up the location element, I think, is is also incredibly helpful. Um, the, I think, don't get me wrong, I think social media complicates the public, right? Like, 
And and uh, I once got into an argument. Um, this is before Elon Musk bought Twitter. I once got into an argument <laughs> over Trump's ban being banned on Twitter, um, where where I just think somebody was arguing in bad faith. Like they were mostly mad. Like they were not they were not thinking thoughtfully about the argument and what they were saying. And and I'm a theologian, so emotions matter to me. Like, hey, man, emotions can help us talk about God. So, like, I'm, I'm not mad that this guy got mad. But I am mad that this guy that I argued was not thoughtful. I was like, hey, if you want to have it, basically, he was just mad that Trump got banned and was mad that that um, uh, uh, I don't know, the Constitution didn't protect him from getting. But it's banned. not like he went to jail. <laughs> but he didn't. Go, well, at least not yet. Well, um, not <laughs> But you're right. He wasn't thrown in prison. <laughs> he was he was taken off of uh, a social media platform that he signed up for. Right. Like I it's but but basically I said to this guy, I was like, hey, I understand you're upset. I really do. But like. We're talking about two very different things. We're talking about a guy who can walk out of his office and say, bring me the press and the press have to show up. And they have to put it on television. And so this guy has not been banned from the public. You know, he's he's been he has been removed from a particular public. And then I said, now, if you want to have a robust conversation about how social media changes what we understand the public sphere to be, that's a very different conversation because I think we're on to something there. I think that if most if if a lot of our public discourse happens on these platforms, well, and I know you don't like hearing this, Ross, well, then maybe we need to talk about regulation. Not in terms of like trying to wrest control from these platforms. But actually, actually, I do want to I do like talking about I do like talking about that. I'm glad because I, because in my mind, in my mind, if we're really if if in social media it's stuff like that has become the majority of our public sphere. Well, constitutionally, that needs to be protected then. Now, will, now it needs to I, be different. There's a couple points that's it's really interesting you, you talked about the regulating of social media because there's like different ways you can look at it, right? And like each platform mm -hmm. is specific. So one of the analogies with Trump getting booted out of Twitter, it's like if I go to the tavern down the street from where I live and I become an undesirable patron and they say, Hey, you're barred from coming back in here. I can still go to the next bar down the street. Exactly. Like that's it. Like, they didn't bar me. So right. like to, to that point in your argument, I hear you. Like I hear you. I feel you. What? Like I get it. You know what I mean? I'm not saying like, Oh yeah, Trump should be banned or not banned from Twitter. I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not Jack Dorsey. Like you guys use your discretion but when it comes to regulating social media, as a I'll say as a user and as someone that cares about the public, the public, mm -hmm. I really don't like logging into Twitter and the first things I see are politicians I don't care about. Like when I go into Twitter, it's like, oh, I want to like talk, like read news from my friends or like from business or from like other interests that I have. And right. and these politicians, that's not who like I can't I can't even hit a way to not have it show up in my algorithm. Mm -hmm. And on the other end of the spectrum, right? Like I'm with you. If we're going to, if we're going to be like, Hey, you're censored for doing this thing. I don't know about 
the easiest example of what I'm trying to say is I think that if it's the public and if I was Jack Dorsey or now Elon Musk, I would be mm-hmm. like, hey, let the people decide what they want to see. I am not going to be the one that either suppresses or promotes content necessarily. Sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like Hunter Biden's laptop right before the election. Like that became a true thing. But then the government was like, you know, maybe we just don't like show that one. Like right now, now's not a good time. Sure. And I'm just like, well, you know, it's if it's true, like if, if, it's, if it's false, you know, that's where I'm at. I'm like, hey, if you're going to have regulations, go for it. But make it like universally applicable and like let the people that are signing up for the terms and conditions like actually just don't don't mislead people. They just don't mislead people. Sure, sure, sure. Well, and here's the thing, buddy, like like the here's some now we're we're crossed into a theological question about truth. Right. Like part of like what I do, this isn't like the thing I study, but like a good public theology question um, then becomes okay, we have this public sphere or multiple public spheres, right? Um, And we communicate there. To what extent do we as a society um, uh, um, or whatever, to what extent do we need to think about making sure that this content is true? Because it's not really... Like on one hand, you can like approach it, I think, very like economically. And all I mean by that is like a sort of a laissez-faire, like, well, if this is what the people want to talk about, then this is who am I sure. to stop it? Sure. On one hand, sure. Like the I sky understand. is green. The, the sky is green. It's very popular. Let's all, let's all talk. About. I want to see more about the sky being green. Right. Like we right. know it's not true. We know it's not true. But like on one hand, like there's that. And I go, yeah, sure. Fine. On the other hand, you know, when we start asking questions about truth and like, uh, flourishing or or you know what what does it mean when we are in a public community together um well now we kind of have to start asking questions like to what extent does a uh a, a public sphere that um people can just kind of share whatever they want to what extent does that negatively impact those same people's ability to be in public community with each other you, you have to wear a shirt or pants if you go into a store. That's a really great example, actually. Right? Right. Yeah, like, yeah. That would be like a rule that like I agree with. Mm-hmm. I would hope that society at large would just not want to see like my private parts. Right, right. And and you know what? Like there are some like there are some folks who would say any regulation or rules at all <laughs> is one step away from the gulag. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like, <laughs> Like being told that you need to wear a shirt and pants for going into a giant to get eggs is not one step away from an internment camp. Like, like that's not, that's not the same thing. Um, uh, and, and so, but I do think, I think you need to have like a robust public. It, I want it to be a public theological conversation, but we're not all ready for that. But like, um, I, I think there needs to be a robust conversation about, well, I mean, if things are untrue, so like what if the Hunter Biden thing was just not true? Oh, it just wasn't true. Um, but it got shared and spread everywhere and 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 it had a direct impact on American public policy. Well, if it was if it was completely not true, that would suck. <laughs> exactly. Right? Now like, of course it was true, but like, like if, that, if, if yeah. someone said Joe Biden was an alien, 
right? Right. And like that mm-hmm. was the most popular thing on Twitter before the election. And yeah. they're like, oh, I don't want an alien to run our country. Mm-hmm. That's a silly thing, but at the it, same time, like that shit can happen, you yeah. know. And uh, and so that's I think uh, just to connect it back to theology, like these conversations are very much in the realm of like a public theological conversation. Like it, truth is not personal. It sounds weird for us to say, I think sometimes as like 21st century people, where we're like, well, religious and theological truth is something that we have inside. Like it's for me or for you or whatever. And I go, sure it is. But also in the 21st century, truth is public. Like, like truth is not just something, uh, particularly the truth of religion or or theology, like truth is not just something that impacts my inner life. You know, our conversations about truth impact our outer and public lives together. Mm. And so and so to um, I'm going to say regulate. And I don't know who who you would write, who we would ask to regulate. Right. Like that's a, a tough one. one. That's a complicated. Right. Answer. Right. Exactly. But like, I don't think a public theologian would say um, that we can we can rest easy knowing that the public without any apparatus to help the public um, can regulate and discover the truth on their own. I think that's fairly obviously not true, um, particularly with the way in which, say, like social media on purpose tries to make us mad you know it doesn't... oh yeah well right and i know this might go into economics but i will i want to touch point on that the fact yeah. that outrage is like the emotion that gets the most engagement because yeah. i've done my fair share i've i've probably spent between all clients in the last 10 years easily say quarter million dollars on advertising whether on google or social media ballpark mm-hmm. but like Sometimes you have to understand that people interact way more when they're pissed off. Sure. And that gives, and and there's an incentive for these platforms to, because that's who's paying them, right? It, they don't, People don't understand that Google doesn't just get money from the sky. It gets money from having people click on it or Facebook right. from, from clicks. So anyway, that's my bit. No, I think you're right. I think, I think that's very good. Let me throw something out at you. Yeah, please. Um, uh, as just sort of a part of the conversation that I, I'd like to see what you think. So there's this guy, I'm, I'm going to be very honest about him up front and not trick anybody, especially for the listeners who might want to look him up. So there's this guy by the name of Carl Schmidt. Um, Carl Schmidt was a Nazi. I just want to make that very clear. Like he was a member <laughs> of the German Nazi party. He, you know, like, so like, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I just want to make sure everybody knows that. Um, he was a political theorist and like a jurist, in, you know, in Nazi Germany uh, and and was around for a while. He died in the 80s in Chile. So he was, you know, good old fashioned, good old fashioned Nazi. Um, <laughs> but he had a book that he wrote in the 20s called uh, Political Theology. Uh, he was not a theologian, so he had a different way of using the word theology. But this was a book about sovereignty and like the political concept of sovereignty. Mm. Mm. Um, it's a very interesting book. It's a little spooky because like, you know, we nowadays we throw around the word fascist all the time. That's a very uh, buzzword. That's a it's, a it's a big buzzword. But but he's a fascist. Like, like this is a 
this is a piece of fascist political theory. Um, and uh, it's an interesting book in and of itself, but one of the premises behind this book is that he, he believes that um, every political term that we use starts out as a theological term about God, like in its history uh, as a term. And so the term sovereignty, sovereignty, um, we use nowadays politically to to mean, depending on what kind of you know governmental system we're in, um, whoever is in charge, right? Like the sovereign. So in a democracy, we the the people are the sovereign, right? In a monarchy, the king is the sovereign. In a dictatorship, the dictator. And bing, bang, boom. He has his book is about suggesting that perhaps democracy is lying to us but that's a different that's a different thing entirely but um he i think is very right in saying that um however prior to all of these things the word the sovereign was always god and that was just the term we used for god and the same thing is true of the term election and this is a uh, for th christian theologians this this is pretty clear to us like election used to be the name we gave um for when god um welcomes people into the church or when god makes uh selects folks for salvation they god elects um people and uh under schmidt's way of thinking um the terms mean the same thing it's what has changed is that god has become um these other things in our modern age and so and so sovereign the word sovereign is still about god it's just that now the term god indicates the people or the dictator or the monarch. there's a a new sovereign a new sovereign right. right like that's that's the point with his with his definitions uh interesting so like one thing that I find interesting is that man again, this is one man's opinion, and I am not as credentialed as you, but I believe that human nature, despite what they want to call God or whatever, crave to worship an idol. Whether sure. the idol be God or Jesus or Yahweh or whatever you want, whatever it is. But sometimes people worship like money or like status or like sure. likes on social media mm -hmm. and clout. And I think it's important to like identify what it is that each person privately, publicly, I don't know yet know enough about the distinction identifies as what they think are sovereign. Like it's really, it's, a, it's like a, a, a very essential distinction that maybe people should think about. Yeah, I think you're right. And that, that's a very good, like public theology way of talking about it. Right. Like we, part of, part of, the difference that a public theologian might make in like political discourse is to use the insights of, of like a religious sensibility or theological language to like illuminate what's going on. Right. And so um, there's a theologian that I really respect. His name was Arthur McGill. He's, he's passed away. He was a theologian at Harvard for a few years and uh, he has this really great essay that I teach my students on um, called uh, The Structures of Inhumanity. 
and it's a cool essay and it's about demons interesting Uh, it's really cool um but arthur mcgill in his essay on demons um uses like the demonic and like theologies of demons to illuminate political and social and cultural realities and so it is about demons but it's not about little weird entities with pitchforks and hooves on my shoulder over here right right it it's about um uh he calls the his definition of the demonic is any transhuman powerfulness so any any power that is beyond the human that we experience as negating human life and human values um so any, demons equal any trans transhuman powerfulness negating human values or life human, human life and human values and so hmm. um and and it's a really interesting definition because I think it covers um it's an experiential definition right like it cover it talks about how we experience the re- the world rather than um like like what is the world what is happening necessarily and so for him he might say a single mother um, has a very limited amount of time to both get to work, pick up their child, make sure everything happens, but they need to go to the DMV. The experience, perhaps, of the of sitting in the DMV can be a demonic experience. Not not just not just because the DMV sucks, but because it can be experienced as a power that is beyond the human realm, right? The DMV's power is not, cannot just be reduced to the poor guy who has to work in the DMV. Like the DMV's power goes beyond the human realm and can be experienced as negating human life and human values. And so, and so we might say that the woman, this is just a little example he uses, he uses larger examples then too. We might say that this single mom that he invokes is under demonic attack and finding her life, you know, uh, beginning to be attacked and crushed and siphoned off and harmed. We might say of the DMV employee that they are possessed. That, that that this power that is beyond human life has, has come upon them and has transformed them, not into thinking and feeling and empathetic human beings, but into cogs, right? Of the that DMV have, machine. Of the DMV machine. Um, and that's an example of like a theologian, a public theologian, taking theological insight and using it to illuminate reality uh, that I really like. Well, I don't like the DMV. And I have a whole new outlook on them now. That's perfect. That's, That's perfect. wonderful. So uh, one of the things you were discussing about Carl Schmidt and how the political terminology always sinks back to God, that I thought of, that's just like, so it's just so fascinating to me. There's a couple of thoughts and I hope that they make some sort of tangential sense. Like one being, you know, Nazi Germany, obviously, for those of you that know, and Carl Schmidt was a supporter of this, 
like the signal to hail Hitler, like literally worship the so- I, I'm assuming that like would mean to worship the sovereign as he had perceived it, being Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then like on on that on that side, it's like, okay, that's what you believe. And then sure. one of the the interesting things about like Judaism and that religion, as, as I understand it, is like a way to refer to that religion is like you're part of the chosen tribe. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, are you guys fundamentally just disagreeing on who the sovereign is? And like, oh, one of you are demonic and the other is not. But like, there's a lot more to it. But it's like when you break it down to like language games, shout out to Wit- Wittgenstein. It's like, is that the fundamental disagreement? Like, hey, we're the sovereign. You're you're demonic, and vice versa. I mean, obviously, like you know that you're not supposed to subjugate entire religion of people like let's just that's a very clear cut like in my opinion the vote is like hey don't be a fascist or a nazi you know right but like and then the other the other thing that's funny about modern day to to bring into politics and war is like i remember months ago probably last december try and understand what was this conflict going on with ukraine like i had family members that are military service that you know, special operations traveling around and after, after the fact, like, yeah, we were over Ukraine, like Estonia, Lithuania, like Eastern Europe. And like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty bad. Right. And that was like, when they came back and when it became public news, like, oh yeah, there's this war in Ukraine with Russia. And one of the, so I I started researching and one of the uh, military intelligence of Russia said that United States or the UN or NATO is run by Jewish gay demons. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm just like, what in the hell? Like, is that like the language, right? So we're just talking about language. Yeah. Like, it matters a lot because these are literal world wars, like being started over these definitions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my thought. It's crazy. No, I, that's a good thought, and it is crazy. I am. Um, yeah, I I spend a lot of time, not really researching, but just trying to wrap my head around anti-Semitism in such a large way, right? Like the Jewish people are secretly controlling the whole thing. And I, and I'm like, they are, I, I I'm going to be real with you, man. I, I don't know how that's possible, but okay. <laughs> um, I'm uh, not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Like, yeah, it's just kind of, it's kind of bananas. Um, Carl Schmidt would say uh, when Carl Schmidt defines the sovereign, uh, he's got a relatively famous or infamous line in his book. He says, um, sovereign is he who, oh gosh, hang on. I'm going to get it wrong. Sovereign is he, I'm going to, I might get this slightly wrong, but I'll still get it right. Sovereign is he who defines the state of exception. And um, what that means, so sovereign is he who defines the state of exception. What that means is Carl Schmitt's sovereign is the person who can suspend the rules, who can make an exception to the law. Um, and so this is actually central to Carl Schmitt's um, uh, critique against democracy. Because that's really what this book is about. This book, this book is about saying, this is why we need a strong leader and Fuhrer um, and why democracies are bad. Um, 
I do not endorse this. I like democracy. <laughs> so I just want everybody to know that who's listening. Like I like democracy. But but Carl Schmidt would say that um his critique against democracy is actually very subtle. He he says, in a democracy, the rule is that we talk. The rule is that we have these laws that determine how, you know, what the boundaries are and what we can do and say and 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 as long as we're following the laws we can essentially do and say whatever we want like we're we're not really bound we only just have to listen to the laws right um and then in democracy we are talking and debating and colluding and and forming you know relationships and alliances and carl schmidt would say but none of that is actually true because when you get right down to it um, when we are threatened, when a democracy is threatened, the they suspend the rules. The rules disappear. And instead, they ask somebody to lead and solve the problem. And Carl Schmidt would say, that's the sovereign. The secret sovereign of, of a democracy is um, whatever the leader says, right? Um, for for Carl Schmidt, that might be like the president, right? It might be just be that simple, like a president or prime minister who says, I'm in charge. Here's the executive order. Here's what we're doing. Big bang boom. I'm I'm throwing the Senate out the window, right? Like, like spi in, spicy take Anthony Fauci if COVID happens. You know what? Carl Schmidt would say COVID is a really great example of like Schmidt's principle in action, right? Like here is this, here is this thing. And, and what should happen in a democracy is the legislative body that has been duly elected comes together. They might make a decision that the people don't super like, but it would work, but, but it's still, it's still correct for the duly elected people to create laws and make decisions on behalf of the whole of, of the polity, right? Like mm -hmm. that would be correct to have um, a sovereign to have, this would be Carl Schmidt would say, remember the sovereign is the guy who can show up and say, fuck the rules. And we all go, okay, you know, that's the secret sovereign. Now, Carl Schmidt thought that was a good thing. Carl Schmidt's like, this is why democracy, democracy is an illusion. We should have, not have democracy because because of this like this is how things really work um and so that's that's why carl schmidt ends up going hitler's my man he's the best right <laughs> um but uh but yeah like and and you know what's kind of interesting ross like i spent a lot of time just by nature of of you know my program like i spent a lot of time with folks that are pretty darn far on the left sure this is this is a point of of um contact that folks that are pretty far on the left totally agree with you on like like folks that are pretty far on the left are like hell no man go there we cannot suspend democracy over this like like they they they're like they're like no 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 <laughs> and and like might have they might they might mat they might still be masking but they definitely are like no we can't have the sovereign decide this bullshit. Like, like if we're going to be a democracy, we have to demand democracy. We have to 
They have to say, no, this is going to be decided through the process. So I'm with now you. That, that's that's a very interesting, very, very interesting topic. So I want to I want to dig a little bit further. I, I don't want to go about the whole history of Ethan's education, right? That's not the podcast title. Um, but right now, as as we speak after your exam, the the title of what your dissertation loosely or maybe not so loosely is would be a modest holiness sanctification at the end of ecclesiology. Yes. Study of the church, right? Mm-hmm. So like, let me, because obviously you've thought about it for an immense amount. Can you give me a little bit about like what, like a, like a sneak peek, like a trailer, right? If this is, if this paper is going to be a movie, like give me the trailer if you can. Sure. So the question that I'm asking at the beginning is, <clears throat> so, well, let me start with this. So tradition, so what sanctification is, sanctification is um, the kind of theological term for like Christian formation. When theoretically, hopefully, when you become a Christian, you begin a lifelong process of being formed by God in God's grace uh, to be formed into a, um, a person who exhibits the traits of Jesus of Nazareth, who has love in their heart for even their enemy, who, who is, is always prepared to follow the will of God courageously um, who can recognize, that's the other thing, who can recognize the will of God over other wills, right? Like, like theoretic, that's what sanctification is, that we are, that we are becoming people like that when we become Christians. I love sanctification. In my opinion, Ross, if it, sanctification is a whole ball game, right? Like if somebody goes, what, what, what is the difference being a Christian makes? I go, let me tell you, God has saved people for one reason, other than the fact that God loves us. God has oh, saved I was going to say that was the reason, but okay, go on. That, that is the reason. Don't get me okay. wrong. Like that is, that is of course the very important reason. God has saved people because God loves us and because God wants to make us good people. <laughs> like, and if you are a Christian and you claim to be saved and the stuff I'm saying right now, you, you go, I don't have any fucking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> You got a problem, like 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 no, man. Like, <laughs> like like God wants to form you into a new being, mm. right? Like to me, that's the whole ballgame. Traditionally, traditionally, um, particularly over the last let's say twenty years, modern and contemporary Christian thought tells us that. The Christian is sanctified in the church. That the church, part of the church's job is to be the community that a Christian belongs to, to to become more sanctified, to become more holy, more, more formed as a Christian. And so God uses the church to do that. And so the question I am posing in my dissertation is, if that is true, why is the church such a colossal failure at this? 
That's a great question. Particularly in general, but particularly um, in light of almost the last 10 years. Because Christians have been mobilized time and time again in this country. Not, I don't mean to support political candidates, but to do political action that is really antithetical to everything I've just described sanctification should be like. Like, I'm trying to make a distinction in my dissertation. I'm not talking about why are Christians voting one way and not the other. I'm not talking about why do Christians support uh, uh, something and not another thing. I am asking, why did so many Christians show up on uh, on, on the Capitol steps to kill Mike Pence? Why did that happen? Like, or I'm trying, like, like how, how is it possible that that happened? Because these are not just <laughs> random people. Many of the people who did that are like, of course I'm a Christian. And I'm like, really? Really? Really now? Or like, how is it possible well, that... Um, or like Joel Olstein could just be like, hey, you know, this, this hurricane is terrible in Houston, but like, get off my property. Yeah, that's another great example. Or, I, or like, I don't know, like maybe you're supposed to help people that are in need. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it's stuff like that that make me go, okay, but how? Because because the answer, and I and I think this is a co- more complicated question than um, different people are uh, uh, might claim it is. It's not that traditionally a Christian, a theologian might say, well they're not really Christians then, or maybe they were never Christians in the first place. And I, that you let people off the hook. These are people who will swear up and down. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm a Christian. Some of these people would swear up and down and say, frankly, I'm here with my church group, right? <laughs> like this, we go to a church men's breakfast and we also decided to try to kidnap the governor of Michigan, right? You know what I mean? Like, like it's just, it's just a very strange to me. I look at that and I go, how did we colossally fail to to form people, to form Christians in a way that is recognizably Christian? Dude, I I I wanna I'm getting goosebumps hearing about this because I love this question that you're asking. Because one of my biggest problems with the church, really, I think you did a better job of summing up the question than I had, is this. It's like, why is it that when I was growing up, I had people in my community that I knew, two major examples, a family that was, and I don't want to say who they are, right? Anonymous, sure. but very, very, very evangelical. Like, like we are Christians. You're not as Christian as us in some respects. Like you're not like telling me I'm not a Christian. Like, so you're, that's not for you to say. And then three out of the four got arrested for sex crimes. Right. Like, like, like what? Like what? Or like another one was a pastor who did like youth, youth group retreats and was the Santa Claus and then got arrested for like pedophilia and like molesting children. It's like, what? And like, for me, that was like my biggest inner turmoil. I was like, okay, like, who am I supposed to believe? Like, if this is what people that tout the church is, is this like, whatever. But like those individual, those two circumstances in my formative years really turned me off on like the institution of the church. Like I love Christ. I think he's a great guy. I think he's a great example. But like some of the Christians that I've been seeing, the Christians I've been seeing, I'm like, 
I don't want to be like you. Like I, I don't have any of these like urges to break the law in ways that I find abhorrent. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I think you're exactly, you're dead right, Ross. Like, like, and, and people are seeing this, right? Like this is not a, this is why I think it's a, a, I'm so interested in it. It's always been something of a joke, right? Like to non-Christian people. Yeah, man, Christians, Christians suck, right? (laughs) Like it's always been something of a joke, but we're beyond just being like assholes, right? Like we've, yeah, I mean, people mess up. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But we've now crossed into, and it seems like it's really ramped up in like the last decade. Like we've now crossed into, oh, you're not just an asshole. You, you might be a threat. Like you might be, you might be deranged, (laughs) you Mm. might be damaged, right? Like in an important way. Um, And, and once again, I don't want to let them off the hook or let the church off the hook and just say, well, these people only claim to be Christians. They're, they're not really Christians. I'm like, no, no, they're really Christians. These are really Christian people who really do go to church. Who and they're really... in the public sphere and they're saying, I am a Christian. Exactly. Who in are public. In... Exactly. Exactly. And so my dissertation will probably split up into, into about five chapters. Mm-hmm. The first chapter will be about that, will be like asking that question and doing some preliminary work to like talk about uh, what I think some of the um, different ecclesiologies that that are active in the life of the church right now are like, like basically the ecclesiologies that I think are, are, are the most influential, I think are generally pretty bad ecclesiologies. Um, and so I'll spend some time talking about that. And then the middle three chapters are going to be my constructive argument where, where I'm going to, basically, I'm going to go back to three, possibly four um, Christian thinkers that I think we have not listened to adequately, Mm. who, who present a different way of thinking through that relationship um, the relationship between church and sanctification um, that I think is much more helpful. And that's why I call it a modest holiness. I think the key, I think the my the key to my argument, I think is probably going to be um, Christians, at least in this country, if, if they are serious, if they are very serious about becoming sanctified, more holy, mm-hmm. wa- wanting to wanting to do this, we need to pare it down. We need to step back a little bit. Not like not be involved in our society. That I don't think I don't think we need to become Amish, but but I think that we have perhaps we have overreached, right? Like like perhaps when when a, an evangelical pastor says they're voting yes on abortion that's horrible. You need to take the streets, you know, like, like perhaps we need to go, Ooh, okay. Maybe we don't want to take the streets, you know, mm-hmm. like, like maybe, maybe when Christians hear their pastor say, talk about say a political um, uh, policy that they disagree with. And they hear that pastor talk about it in terms of good and evil and, and this and okay. that they get, they, Perhaps we are being mis, um, we're being malformed, right? Well, like one of the questions, right? What would Jesus do? It's not like 
some of these pastors are asking, what would Jesus do? It's like, here's what I, here's what I, the pastor want you to do. Right. 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 Uh, Like exactly. Nobody's so like abortion is a really great example because I think, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in having a debate with anybody on abortion, frankly, but what I am interested in is thinking through what are the, what are the Christian ethical demands uh, on uh, on us if there are no abortions. And so if there are no abortions, um, what would be a more sancti- what would be the sanctified Christian approach? Adoption, community, people? right? It caring for people. Adoption. It could be community, right? Could be caring for people. It might be a, a um, it might be that Christians need to think about how can our church pay for health care for young women? How can our church, um, you know, if, if, if how can our church draw alongside of families who are considering this and make real, substantial, and material difference in their lives? Because people, the the overwhelming majority of people who consider abortions are not just sitting around being like, "Well, that's aborted our kid." Like, like that's not what happens. That never happens. Almost never. Instead, the people who consider abortion are people who are looking at their material positions and going, "This, this is an impossibility. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't do this." Okay, a sanctified response from the church is a modest response. It's not a, it's not a let's create a new world order. It's a it's a response of well how can we how can we aid the people in need that are in front of us right now? Mm. That would be my argument, which is once again why I call it a modest holiness. Like like we, we've we've gotten too big for our britches. We've imagined that the goal of the church is to make the whole world um, a, a a a a Christian world order. The problem is, is that when that's what we imagine, we I, I think that Christian people get get um, are so malformed and begin to think that this is like an any means necessary thing that like that, like, oh, man, we, we are engaged in open revolution. We've we've got to it because this is about evil and good. We don't have to treat our enemies with love. Because our enemies aren't just our enemies. They're the enemies of God. They're the enemies of the world. Like, like who, brother? I don't know. You know, like, like that doesn't sound right to me. Um, and so, but basically my dissertation will use these, these three or four thinkers I'm thinking of to basically just help us construct. Um, and this is what I'll, this is my suggestion to help us construct a way of thinking about Christian formation that loosens this, this might sound weird that loosens the hold that the church has over Christians and makes that, makes Mm. that community a little more porous, right? A little more, not does away with it, but, but does it make it a, if you're a Christian, you have to get all of your news, all of your information, all of your action and morals from the church community and instead encourages Christians to be active servants in the world, right? Um, because I think if you do it that way, I think I think that if a Christian is formed by God in and among people who are not Christians, 
um, I think that we become sanctified and made more holy in, frankly, a more just way. It's not that we stop being Christians. It's just that I think our, our holiness and the work that God does on Christians uh, is always done then in and among all these other people who are have needs and who are also loved by God and who are who are um, a part of our communities anyway, right? Like it does it does Christians no good to shop at Target and be in community with the people who are shopping at Target, but also think that if you're not in the Christian club, you're garbage. If you don't, if you if you're not a conservative, you're garbage. If you're gay, you're garbage. It does them no good. Why? Because we're all shopping at Target. We're all in this together. It doesn't it doesn't make sense to both use the resources of the community you're a part of and have disdain for the community that you're a part of. It malforms you. It fucks you up. I mean, um, it, to to make an analogy, and I want to again, it's not apples to apples, but that's like saying. Wayne Gretzky, the best hockey player of all time, right? Yeah. Michael Jordan, the best basketball player. That's like them going to like a, an elementary school um, a hockey or basketball game and looking at the kids playing, be like, oh man, you guys are garbage. You guys suck. Right. right? Because they're just not as good as, as them. It's right. like, here's an idea. Like let the person who has no sin or no fault cast and throw the first stone it's like mm -hmm. we're all trying to be more like the sovereign i would assume if you're a part of the christian faith you're all trying to be more like jesus but like does jesus shame people for not being him like i don't think so no and that's the thing not only does jesus not do that um like the only I, I, because i work under the assumption i think this is true because i work under the assumption that we already to a really important degree um, are not just interdependent on each other, but like we are responsible for each other in a very important way, like in a more fundamental way than like an economic way, right? Like, because I think that, so like if I am a, if I'm a part of the Gordonsville community and I shop at the grocery store and I patronize the local businesses and, and I um, care for uh, the the women or men who are walking on the street and and I um, drive down the streets and I watch for pedestrians, if all of that is true, then to a very real extent, not only am I responsible for these folks, but these folks are responsible for me. I also walk on that street. I'm also a part of, the, of, of their lives, maybe in a cursory way, but I'm still a part of that. Um, not, not only do you drive like your children live there, but your children do live there. My children do live there. Yeah. And so, and so the approach, the, the idea that um, uh, many Christians in this country have, which is that they can be that set apart, that they can't, that there is a possibility that theirs is a community that is not only better than the surrounding community, but that it's, but that it's better in a cosmic way. Uh, is more than a little silly because <laughs> there's no such thing as the church grocery store. Mm. There's no such thing as the church street that only church people get to walk on. We are already beholden to each other. 
And so why wouldn't it be true that we, that Christians can be formed morally by living into that already being beholden to each other? The Christian learns love, not, not just because they learn to love other Christians. At, at church. At church, right. Not just at church. Not just at church. The Christian learns love by being placed in situations with other non-Christians that they have a common life with, mm-hmm. right? Like, like that's so, the goal. So to, to bring it back to politics, Ethan, and I apologize, I don't mean to cut you off. It would be a fallacy to only vote on whether or not a candidate identifies as Christian. Like for the Republican Party, the same people that wanted to kill Mike Pence, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. because of the January 6th, like the Trump, that part of time like there's a candidate in the republican primaries who is right now in some polls second or third vivek ramaswamy who is like i'm a hindu like i'm not a christian but he's running for the republican ticket and like in my mind it's like okay like are you a good person like do you do things that are good it's not like i i don't think i think it would be folly for people that identify like are in your the camp of christianity like, oh, I can't vote for him. You know, he's doesn't look like me or doesn't practice the same faith as me. Like, I think that's in some ways maybe tied into the message you're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me let me tweak that a little bit because it is it is it, it very much ties in. I, I'm going to make a normative statement about what I think, how I think Christians should vote. And I told I know I told you I wasn't going to do that, but I'm going to do it now. Oh, that's fine. I, I think that a Christian who has been formed well as a Christian, um, uh, should not, or, or should, is, should be morally not allowed <laughs> from, from their consciences perspective to vote for a candidate that only helps them. Mm, doesn't help I, the that, community, that, the larger. Right, right. And so, and I think it connects to what you're saying. So if a Christian encounters a candidate who is not a Christian, who maybe um, maybe doesn't have uh, certain maybe is against them on certain policies, but is able that Christian is able to judge that well if this candidate is the real deal and if this candidate can get elected, my neighbor would really be helped by that. That to me is a good. Um, Christian, morally formed Christian who is formed by the Christian faith and is approaching politics with the mind of Christ, right? Like, I, I, I think that is correct. And, and Ross, I just don't think Christians in this country do that. I just don't think so. I think that Christians are so malformed in this country that they, that, that they judge candidates exclusively on whether or not they will help Christians. And a lot of that help, and again, I'm this is my opinion, boils down to economic help. Yep. It's like, oh, which candidate will ensure my financial prosperity more so? And mm-hmm. I think what people lose sight of is that where we live in the United States, and especially the East Coast, it's more wealthy than 99% of the rest of the world from a from yep. a from a financial standpoint so it's just like i don't know maybe the money that you stand to make or not make by a candidate 
wouldn't be the monocausal reason to vote for one person when you're like, hey, like the rest of the world, like also is kind of fucked. Yeah. In a, in a stance, like maybe, you know, that perspective to me is, is a newer one to think about like, you know, I have family members from Canada and mm-hmm. Canada is not, especially rural Canada is not an apples to apples comparison to the United States. And sure. it's certainly not the same as Mozambique. And it's certainly not the same as like Indonesia or, you know, like Nepal, right. They're just certainly drastic economic condition differences. Right. But like at the end of the day, like what are like to think that one factor of perceived power or economic mobility or whatever, like matters to them in their, in their public sphere. It's like, you know, when I would visit family in rural Canada, it was more like, Hey, do we have fun together? Like, do we have the ability to spend time and to connect with, with our family? Like Mm -hmm. what's for dinner, you know, more of a communal focus. And I think with the modernity of United States, and, and how much we have, we can just door dash instead of having to even interact with a family member. Everyone could be looking at a screen in their room in the, in a unique room in their large house and not even interact with their family. It's just like, is that what Jesus wants you just to be like on your screen all day? I don't know. Sure. My vote is probably not. So probably not. So probably not. I, anyway, that's my, my long winded uh, attempt to empathize and be like, you know, I get, I kind of get it. Right. Because neighbors to could also be from a political stance, could be Canada and Mexico, like directly near us, or it could be trade partners. Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of it as well, right? I, I think, but I think there's and you you've named really concrete practical things too, but like I think other concrete practical things, you know, for me, uh boiled down to so like I really like public transportation. Part of this because I lived in DC and for four years and, and that was the primary way I got around. And so like I have concrete relationship to like pretty good public transportation. The DC's metro is, is when I lived there in particular was was certainly better than a lot of metro state um mm-hmm. uh, systems. But like I think that like getting pl- people from one place to another is a super concrete uh, policy initiative from any candidate and a great opportunity for Christians who have been formed well to think about how they vote. Um, because it can be different depending on what community you're in, right? Like if, if, if you are a city Christian, if you live in a city that requires strong public transportation, uh, even if you do not use it. To me, a properly formed Christian should not be thinking about their needs. Well, not because they're not important, but because, well, we already have faith in God's providential action to provide for my needs, but instead should be considering, well, who who is in need? Who How can my neighbor best be served? Would my neighbor best be served by um, defunding the metro? Probably not. Probably not. My neighbor probably needs that to get to work, to get their kids to school, to have fun with their family, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) to do these things, right? These are concrete things where I go, yeah, 
maybe that's how it works. Now, that's just DC, right? Like, I'm not saying, therefore, uh, public transportation should be extra funded in ev- uh, all over the place in every single community, because we're not here to talk about every single community. Um, uh, but maybe another option is about how one can get a hold of cars or gas or whatever. You know what I mean? But energy. Like, energy. Maybe, you know, making affordable gasoline because I know you've lived both in rural areas and suburban areas and metro areas. So you have kind of a unique living history, right? right? Absolutely. And and I think that that if Christians can be trained and um oh hang on one second. Uh I'll call her back. That was my secretary. I'll call her back. Um if Christians can be trained to see um uh, um, even mundane political and public sphere stuff as directly connecting to the things that they value, mm-hmm. family, love, community, grace, um, because I think they are. I don't think that's a trick. I think they are connected to those things. Um, that is a great way that Christians can be formed to be good neighbors in the world. Instead, I think Christians are formed to see things like Public policy is out to get you. Um, uh, um, um, there's our our society is filled with evil people who are trying to turn the freaking frogs gay, you know, <laughs> and 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 all of this stuff. That is, I think, malformed Christian thinking. Well, um, that- to to that to the Alex Jones quote, I also think clean drinking water matters a lot. It does. But the delivery in which you say it. Yeah. Like you shouldn't be making a message that's just to get your your website and your channel more clicks. Absolutely. Like, hey, maybe atrazine, like there's studies show that atrazine's making uh the biological makeup of frogs like more hermaphroditic. It doesn't right. get as many clicks as the turn of freaking frogs, hey, you know? <laughs> right, right. The water should be clean. I agree. <laughs> I agree. But it's not as sexy. It doesn't get the clicks. It goes back to our, one of our original topics of like social media being a public sphere. It does. And and by way of wrap up on that, it also goes back to our topic of how uh, much responsibility do we have to make sure these things are true? Mm-hmm. Because that's a really great example of, of what happens when we use these strategies to get clicks that are not entirely true that's not exactly what's happening but it can form uh people who are watching into moral action and that moral action might be bad uh (laughs) and in this case could could very well be bad right like they're turning the freaking frogs gay well that if you are formed by that not only does that change the way you understand you know the public sphere in government or public policy to your community, but it also kind of changes the way you understand gay people. Like, oh, well, maybe I can be turned gay, <laughs> right? That's. I not- mean, I mean, to to your point, like sweeping generalizations, as in, there's a boogeyman who's going in and changing everyone's sexual preference. Like, mm. correct. But if but if if it was more like, hey, there's a scientific research done on the effects of unclean drinking water due to pesticides, like they're two totally different things, but they're based off of the same tagline. And like one right. of them is productive and right. not as what? good for getting clicks. And the other one is 
good at getting ad sponsorship money and right. probably the, stirring the pot. Exactly, exactly. One of them is true. And the other one is, is it true? Like, <laughs> like, like you see what I'm saying? Well, and going back to Russia, like saying that United, that NATO is run by uh, gay Jewish demons. Like I would venture forth. That's not true. Probably not. Right. But like the, the, the better question is who runs NATO? That is a better question. That's You're a better exactly question. Right. You're exactly right. So, exactly. well, Ethan, I really appreciate the conversation. As always, um, it's fun, right? To to think and to connect and to and to postulate what I think are incredibly important questions that don't get asked enough, Absolutely. right? And it's just like formulating reasons that make for a better tomorrow. So I think this is an incredibly valuable brainstorm. I know that you have a big day ahead of you and then you have a hard stop coming up. Um, for those, I know you're you're not the most active social media guy, but you have like a 7 million things going on and I get it. Sure. But if anyone wants to connect with Ethan, probably just like maybe find him on social media, maybe not. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, I do have a Facebook. It's just me. It's just my name. Um, but uh, you can also get connected with me. Uh, I do have a Twitter still that I like to use. Uh, I think it's just Pastor E. Shear, at Pastor E. Shear. And, um, or you can talk to Ross <laughs> and, and Ross will help you. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for your time, man. And uh, for those of you listening, if you enjoyed this, as always, share it with a friend, reach out to me, give me feedback, and I'd love to have some more guests on the show.